Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh yeah, just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Net Rocks, episode 1315, with guest Rob Connery. Recorded Tuesday, June 7th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're uh, back for .NET Rocks in Oslo, Norway. We're in our fishbowl. And not to steal your comment, but the ADD room is right across from us. It is. This is the first year that we've looked up out of the booth and seen the ADD room. It's really neat. Usually we're over where uh, this particular Yeah, kind of in is. the middle here, but now we're against one side so we can see. And this is a room where they've got eight projectors showing every room in mm. the, every other speaker room, and you can sit in there and switch between the audio and watch all eight sessions at the same it's time. It's really cool. It's not a good idea, but it's pretty cool. But there's a lot of people there's in there. There's a lot of people up there, and they yeah. can all see us, too. So if they don't want to watch the sessions, they can watch us record. Yeah. Well, anyway, enough about that. Let's roll the music for Better No Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, um, I've been getting a lot of suggestions from the AppVNext guys. Yeah, that's because uh, they're smart. My inner circle here. Uh, Jeff Dalton sent me this one. This is draw.io. That's cool. What is it? Well, you know what uh, Visio is. I do. Imagine that in a browser. That's awesome. Check it out. Draw.io. It's unbelievable. I was just playing with it and uh, flowcharts and... UML so and you everything can draw. else you want to do. And uh, it's, I, I don't know what else to say. It's yeah. just, it's Vizio in a browser. Vizio in a browser. Remember yeah. when you used to pay for Vizio? Yeah. Now it's ruined. Now it's ruined. I love it. <laughs> that's cool, man. Never, what a find. I've, I've never had nothing to say yeah, about something. Just it's, it just, what else can you say? You described it perfectly. I basically, we all know what it is. You all know what the feature set mm-hmm. is. Just go do it. Let's go do it. Yeah, I love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1200, the one we did with Mr. Connery. Mm. We first talked about Elixir. Yeah. Uh, which, and this is back in October of 2015. Generated a ton, ton of comments, many from our friends. And this comment comes from Christoph Aldrich, who says, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to experience it for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I found odd when I started learning functional programming is that I just couldn't 
get it until I started playing with it and using it. Hmm. No matter how many things I've read about it, until I stopped coding in my C-sharp paradigm with F-sharp or scheme syntax, I just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And now I have the same difficulty explaining it quickly. It's like explaining to a new English speaker why sentence structure isn't quite right, even though it's grammatically correct. Yeah. I couldn't recall the name of the effect or phenomenon that you have to try it to get it, so I leave you with a funny quote instead. Functional programming is like describing your problem to a mathematician. Imperative programming is like giving instructions to an idiot. And since computers are idiot savants, both styles are quite suitable for them. <laughs> That's about right. That is a great comment. Love it, love it, love it. Totally agree, Christoph. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We like to mix drinks and make elixirs out of them. Nice. You like that? Oh, jeez. All right. Well, let me introduce uh, Rob Connery. A man really needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway. Rob helps developers of all sorts learn what's new with technology. He's been working in the technology field full-time since 1998 as a DBA and then a web developer. Rob's original focus was the Microsoft ASP.NET stack, building tools like Subsonic and the first micro-ORM, Massive. Yes. In addition, Rob co-founded TechPub.com, which got acquired by Pluralsight with James Avery, and co-hosted This Developer's Life with his friend Scott Hanselman. He currently creates videos for Pluralsight and builds open source things as he can. How you doing, man? Doing well. How are you? Having a good time here. Yeah. You're not in Hawaii anymore, are you? Did you no. move to the mainland again? No. Do you guys, can you cue in some sad music, some violin? No, I'm in Seattle now with my, with my yeah. wife. Yep. Yeah. No, it's a good thing. She wanted to go back to college. Okay. So mm-hmm. she's at best and We year. should be hanging out more since we're just a couple hours apart. I, I was just in Vancouver and I said to my wife, we should go say hi to Richard. She said, absolutely not. <laughs> 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 now, there are some spouses who are like, don't go anywhere near that guy. He'll make you buy something. Mm. Yeah. And much. there are other spouses like, before you buy anything, <laughs> go see that guy. Yeah, right. So it works right. both ways. Yeah. I'm not emotional about it either way. Yeah, okay. So this is a really funny story, and I got to tell this. Sure. We were, you and I were sitting at the Geek Beer, which oh, yes. is the, the beer thing last night, and we just all happened to congregate with this group, and, and uh, Jose, who wrote Elixir, is there. Wow. And, and yeah. Rob's sitting next to him, and he talks to him, and then he, this other guy starts talking, and Rob goes... Oh my God! I just figured out who that is. Yeah, and it's Robert Ver- uh, Robert Verding. Right. Yeah. yeah, the guy who wrote Erlang. Wrote, well, co-wrote Erlang. Yeah. One of the authors of Erlang. Yeah. So you've got the Erlang guy and yeah. the Elixir guy at the table. And well, the- yeah, it was even worse than that because I, I looked at him and, and he and I had been conversing a little bit and I realized I didn't know who he was. Right. So I, I reached out my hand. I'm like, I'm Rob, and he goes, Oh, I'm Robert. And then Jose slugs me. Yeah. He's like, you really don't know who this is. Yeah, and he's like, like, uh-oh, here I we really go. I really am supposed to know who you are. Well, I really should know who that man is. I was and then Mads came and sat down, and my head oh just my exploded. God. It's like a concentration of language <laughs> I know, genius. I, 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 and, and then Mads is like, who's that guy? And I was like, that's what I'm referring to, right? Oh, oh. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the, the you know, my well, head Mads, exploded right there. And Mads there. is Danish too, right? Like yeah. it's the, this, the Scandinavian brilliance yeah. in this set of languages. It's just, it's staggering. Yep. I hate it. 
<laughs> I hate them all. Just joking, of course. And I read that comment from show 1200 because, you know, that was the better, better part of, uh, what, nine months ago, ten yeah. months ago? Yeah. And you were really excited. I mean, about yeah. the most excited I've heard you in quite a while yeah. about, about what a, how Elixir had changed your thinking. Uh-huh. So is it still going on? It's gotten even worse. Oh no! I know. Well, it's but funny. It's gonna be impossible soon. I know. When I was listening to you, uh, you read that comment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny because I was thinking about the slide deck that I was putting together just today, and I'm trying to go through and explain functional programming, and I'm like, I think 120 slides in, and I'm just like, this mm. is impossible to yeah. get across. <laughs> the other thing that that I can't stand is the zealotry that people get into when they learn something new and they just have to yeah. tell everybody about it. Well, it's been. Yeah, nine, ten months now. Mm. I've gotten excited, come back down. Gotten really excited again, mm. and then come back down. <laughs> and so it's funny, I was sitting there, I was preparing the slide deck, and I was thinking, where, where actually am I at with this manic phase that I've been through? <laughs> and I am, I'm actually kind of planed out on just really excited, which is pretty okay, good. You know what I mean? You're just happy all of the time. So you're, you're constantly manic and never down. Um, exactly, yeah, I think. You're unipolar. Yeah. I, I know. Isn't that great? It's a yeah. Good, it's that a condition? It should be. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I've, if there's bipolar, there's got to be unipolar. Yeah. Well, the thing that has kept me going is I've sort of broken through the elixir barrier, yeah. as they say, and, and you get to the underneath stuff, the OTP, the, the way you build applications. Right. I've been focusing on nothing but that. And I think you asked me a question, one of you two of you asked me a question about how all that stuff works in the actor model, and I kind of shrugged, mm. you know. Uh, but now I've, I've crawled, I just crawled way into it. Mm. And... I don't. I like Elixir, but that has nothing to do with why I'm excited about running programs on the whole. Why are you excited about running programs on it? Oh boy, See, this is where I, I, I will try and explain hey, it. You open the door, oh, man. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, Show me a meatball. I'm going to swing at it. So I, when you work with OTP and Erlang, the Erlang OTP. VM. Oh, sorry. Thank you. The Open Telecom Platform, okay. which is what the Ericsson guys Mm-mm. built out on top of Erlang. So right. it's the underlying framework. The idea is that you don't build objects that represent behaviors and aspects. You build yeah. processes that work with other processes, and they own processes, and then you put them under supervision, so if they die, they get restarted again. And so when you start shifting your thinking in that way, you think about programming in a total different way. Hmm. Yeah. Let me give you an example. This is a demo I'm going to do tomorrow. Um, I write some code, just write a module in Elixir. It looks just like Ruby. And then I'll execute it in the REPL. I, so I just type in IEX and I could execute my code. Mm. And then that would work in just about any language. You'd see the code come out and you'd say, okay, it works. Mm. But you haven't structured it the right way because in Erlang slash Elixir world, that, you have to think in terms of what process is running my code. What are the actors, in other words? Yeah, so because every bit of code is owned by a process. Right. And that's your thinking. That's the first step into different thinking. And you're thinking, what it process owns my code. And so IEX is the REPL. Mm-hmm. And so that's the process that runs your code. And you think, well, I, gotta, I can't have that. Because there's no <laughs> guarantees there. Right. Um, and so then you kind of formalize things like, I'm going to wrap this module in its process, and I'm going to stick it in a supervision tree inside of an application. Now your process is owned by your application. And if it dies, it restarts. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you realize the code is just one small part of it. It's the structuring of this right, process right. tree that is so neat. And then you can run some tests to watch things die and restart. And then you think about data access. And on top of that, it's like your so world turns upside down. When I think of the actor model, I think of... Um, an actor, like in a, in a WhatsApp, you know, for example, which is a really yeah. the, sort of the 
poster child for Erlang, yeah. one of them, um, is that each actor might represent a user, mm -hmm. you know, mapped to a user or a device if it was an IoT framework or something like that. Yeah. But you're talking about something where an actor can represent uh, a, a part of the process. Sure. Yeah. So that's a totally different, but I mean, it's just like object oriented, right? You can have an object be a customer, but you can also have service objects that do things, you know, yeah. and business objects and data objects and all sorts of different. So what are the kind of actors that manifest themselves in your world? That's a really good question. So I'm building this e-commerce app. Mm -hmm. And so that's what my talk is based on, mm -hmm. just my journey. Uh, and I, when you think about processes, and you think about something like a shopping cart, let's say, mm -hmm. you don't need to have a lot of, uh, of, of data access and a lot of code that goes into working with a shopping cart. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you need, you need a set of products, right, that people can add to a cart. Right. So the set of products just can stay there, kind of in its own process forever. Mm -hmm. And when it starts up, it pulls this data out. Now that data is sitting in memory, you keep it under supervision. So if any time I throw a query or a request to it and it dies, it'll get restarted right. and just sits there the whole time. Mm. I don't need to do anything or think about it. So that would be an actor. It's just an actor is something that does something right. as opposed to represents something. So this is now doing something for me. And, and I just want to yeah. be careful that we don't try to make the listeners map objects to actors. Yeah, that's unavoidable. Like I know a lot of Erlangers out there, functional people will be saying, oh, no, you don't do that. Well, I'm right. making mistakes right and left, so I'm sure <laughs> you're going to hear lots of that you know, coming out of me. But that must in and of itself just represent a bunch of pitfalls. That it, it does. Yeah. You have to get over a lot of thinking, and I know it's going to take years to, yeah. to get it right. All right, to, oh, so to continue the e-commerce shopping cart. Yeah, well, one of the cool things that I, I realized is that you could have instances, you could have little processes running for every customer that comes along, just start up their own little process. Right. Mm. And so when they start buying things, that process starts accreting data. Right. You know, like they're adding things, but you're also tracking what they're browsing. And what you end up with is this conglomeration of data that makes thinking about data access really strange. Because you don't need to save any of that to a database. Um, I think it was Joe Armstrong said this. He said, people make way too much of a database. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. And if you think about that in terms of a VM that is pretty damn resilient, yep. it's known for its uptime, uh, why do you need a database? Right. Well, I mean, that's an honest question. There's companies out there right now that actually are moving to a databaseless structure. If you can mm. believe that, Moz is the name of the, uh, uh, MOZ is the name of the company. They wrote a, a post about how they're getting away from the database because nice. <laughs> it's too slow. And it was a very controversial Well, it has article. all this formality that you may or may not need. That's right. Yeah. So as it turned out with the shopping cart process thing, you know, I've got all the ad items taken, whatever. I only needed to save that to disk once. Right. And that's when the person hit checkout. Sure. And I can flush the whole thing as a document to, to Postgres, which is what I'm doing. Right. And then it sits there and then their shopping process dies and the fulfillment process starts. Picks it up. Picks it up. Going with it. And, and, and it, I like that you just stored it as a document, too. Yeah. You know, this is a conversation we have many times about the NoSQL versus SQL. Like, why are oh, we yeah. making the customer wait while we decompose oh. this thing into rows and columns? Yep. Why not just store it? Exactly. And let them go. Yeah. And then we'll do stuff with it later. Yeah. Later being milliseconds, yeah. but later. 
I was telling uh, another speaker about this, and they just started going, groaning about, oh, don't talk about event sourcing again, because, you know, this is <laughs> the idea, right? But it's, it's true. You think about this. If I had had this before with, with TechPub, this is the site I'm rolling over. Right. If I had had this structure before where I had all my data aggregated into a single document, like mm -hmm. a single point of authority, yep. it's rather huge, but I would have been so excited because it's just it's this beautiful chunk of data right. that you can then operate on and do stuff, but it's always there, you know? And then, like you said, have, like, the fulfillment process is completely out of band. It's, right. it's, mm. It sits there, runs we things asynchronously. It can be executed independently. Like, yeah. And that's matter. the best part is I can think concurrently with an Elixir process. Like, it can run concurrent tasks, and I don't need to orchestrate anything. It just no. does it. Just so why, you know, why wait to have the mailers go out? Well, you might yeah. want to wait until the charge is captured. That's yep. the other thing I'm doing is I'm capturing the charge not in line. I'm waiting later, and so it's going to grab the Stripe token, and then it's, it's capturing the charge and not making. I'm the sure that makes wait. sense to somebody. Oh. Stripe token. I don't know. Oh, what you're sorry, sorry. About. Stripe is a payment processor. Very, you know. Oh, Stripe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry. I, I wondered what that was all about. I get going on this stuff. No, and no, I realize that's okay. It. I get it. Yeah. So yeah, they. So you could pay PayPal or anything else. Could, Stripe is another one of those. You just have to capture the charge, and yeah. yeah so that's. Uh, but that's a gate on going further in the fulfillment process. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So once that's done. Emails go out, reporting structures go down. All these things need to happen. Yep. You need to make the customer wait for that. Yeah. And if anything goes wrong in terms of, like, you can't capture the charge, it's actually an opportunity to go back mm -hmm. and tell the customer who thinks that they've just, oh, I could buy bought that. You're like, you know, I don't know if you've bought anything from Amazon and say your card has expired or something like yep. that. Charge doesn't go through. They'll send you a note. Yep. Right. And, and in your mind, you're like, oh, God, I thought I bought that. Oh, I'm going to go get another card. And so you're building these gates where, where you, you have to have, have the payment through before you do the fulfillment and so forth. I mean, mm -hmm. you see this in modern e-commerce anyway. It's mm -hmm. all email-driven, mm -hmm. right? Just yeah. lets you know where he is in the process. and yeah. allows things to go wrong and recover. Yep. Well, the mm -hmm. best part about this whole process for me has been getting away from the web and the database and building the application. And yeah. that's, that's what took me so long, because this is a multi-step kind of recursive thing I've been going through here, where mm -hmm. I started out, let's use Phoenix, let's use some generic, Phoenix is the web framework for, yep. based on, yeah. um, I shouldn't say based on Rails, it looks a lot like it Rails. It looks like Rails. And a lot of people really get upset that. when you say that, but yet. Uh, yeah. it, so a lot of people will go and use it just like Rails. Are the people that are upset people who have used Rails before and decided that Phoenix is completely different yeah. or people who you know only used Phoenix and it's like it's the best thing ever you can't compare it to anything a little of both uh, it's mostly the core team a lot of them are here at NDC Oslo and okay and they're perpetually angry with you uh, I think they've they've sort of simmered down a little bit <laughs> <laughs> they're dealing with it but you know when we talked about this this is what this was the point where I'm like, hmm, Elixir's got all the pieces. Yeah. Right? Between the underlying or underlying environment, a nice language to work in, and a framework for building websites. Mm-hmm. It's getting there. Uh, it's it's slow moving, uh, but it is getting there. Mm -hmm. And um you know, coming to conferences like this, there's five or six Elixir talks now as opposed to one, you know, one or two. Yeah. yeah, I think there was one yeah, two at NDC Oslo, uh, mm -hmm. London. But uh, yeah, it's kinda cool. It's neat to see the the language take off. I had a, about an hour-long conversation over at the coffee station this morning with, with Robert. Oh, okay. And it was great. I, I asked him sort of, you know, we, we just got to sort of talking about how he met Jose and, uh, you know, how all that happened. And did he have any influence over Elixir? And he said, no, no. He, he didn't even know about it until after it was done. And then 
he, he met him and he says, and we don't really see eye to eye on some things. And nice. I said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he's very much uh, about the classical Erlang. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, that's very, he doesn't know anything about Ruby. And so that was a whole different, you know. Mm-hmm. That, so when I think of a modern, because when we did the first Elixir show, it was presented as a more modern language right. than you know Erlang, and if in in the end, it's still a functional language, and yep. it still mm-hmm. has the same sort of it compiles to the same Erlang that Erlang compiles mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. but it has quote unquote more modern features. And I guess what does that mean? Does that mean it's just more Ruby like? Yeah, there's a lot of idioms brought in from Ruby, hmm. which will make Ruby people feel very comfortable. So and let's we'll talk about those. Okay. And, we, and in particular, when I think of our listenership, I think mostly of people who have experience with C Sharp and .NET and maybe VBNet. But so what are some of those, the features that cross that boundary? That well, one's, one's not so technical. I would say the primary, the primary thing it brings from Ruby is this drive for expressiveness. I, yeah. I, I hate to use the term eloquence. Oh, no, it's true. Right. Clarity. You and know. Maybe, maybe terseness, like, you know, be sure. able to do more with less. Absolutely. It's like they have, um, some of the syntax is optional. Mm-hmm. So parentheses, for instance, on calling a model, completely optional. Mm. Um, when you get into the idioms, which I, which I love doing because it's really fun, you get into the idioms and then you start watching your code change from mechanical to really expressive. And like to the point where you can read it almost wow. line by line like a book. So, I mean, it just becomes a friendly language, right? It does. Yeah. And there's ways of writing it that are just, I don't know, you, you, ha- you can have fun with the expressiveness that goes into it. Knowing that yourself in you know, a year's time, when you come back to the code base, you'll be able to read it again. Right. And that, to me, is and one of the... And you've cracked a joke in code. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How? Who? What? What? <laughs> well, it's expressive, right? So yeah. somewhere in there, there's bound to be a pun or two. Oh, yeah, isn't yeah. it my <laughs> job to come up with the jokes in this show? <laughs> uh, that's true. Uh, come on, that man. <laughs> yeah. It's like optional syntax is um, the way you work with arrays and, and things like that. There's mm. ranges, you know, stuff like that. It's, it feels very Ruby-ish yeah. in mm. a lot of ways. And then... Uh, Phoenix wait, might be to continue the metaphor, the rails yeah. of Erlang. Yeah, there's yeah. here's one thing I really like about it. Just to drop this out of nowhere, sure. Um, Elixir, like Erlang, uses mm-hmm. pattern matching, yeah, um, which is really cool. And if you do it the right way, you can end up with code that has zero if statements. Yeah, <laughs> wow, this is so cool. And you know why it's cool? It's because following when you're reading code and you're following conditional branches, right? It can get nasty. Well, it's sort of like, um, what's it, like regex, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, I, I would say that's fairly accurate. You're matching on certain structures. You're matching on things that are supposed to be there. Right. And so you can have, uh, for .NET folks out there, C-sharp people, you think of them as overloads. Mm-hmm. Um, you have multiple function heads, is what you call them in, in Elixir, that do a thing. So you're matching on certain conditions. And if you get to a point in your code where you, where you look at this function you're writing and you're thinking, I need an if statement, yeah, now you should stop you and should then reevaluate you think, your yeah, life. Yeah, so what <laughs> <laughs> with the Jedi mind yeah. wave. Yeah. And this is fascinating <laughs> with elixirs. You end up with a module that has a bunch of one-line functions, mm. and that's one thing that I just naturally found is that you end up with these really small functions, and then you pipe them all together. Interesting. And and and, and you favor that over 
huge function bodies. But is a, but is a one-line statement actually meaningful? Like, what? Mm-hmm. why does it need to have a function header around it? That's a good question. It just doesn't cl- need to. This is an idiom. So well, well, maybe right. just for clarity of, of uh, process, yes. right? Because if you have a... If I'm, I'm thinking of a regex statement, which mm-hmm. looks like a cartoon character swearing. Yep. That's a lot of stuff that I don't want in something that I can look at and see and understand yeah. in terms of what the process it's doing. We have a, in this data access tool I wrote, um, we get JSON out of the database and then we have to resolve that JSON because the driver gives it back to us in a weird format. So we mm-hmm. have to cycle through it. And so there's a lot of transformations that we put it through. Right. And so I use the enum library uh, in Elixir to, to map stuff. And so rather than having it in the code, this is enum.map with a callback and all this stuff, I'll wrap that in a single function that says, get the keys ordering properly. And then I'll use that instead. And a lot of people do that in Elixir. They'll wrap just one line function call to a library and hmm. it's to make it more expressive. Right. So the, I'm immediately thinking about multi-threading behaviors, multi-core behaviors. Like every time you make a function call like that, mm-hmm. you're, oh, you're basically declaring an, an aspect of immutability. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking under the hood, that's an opportunity for it to go, oh, I can do this in parallel. I could run this separately. Absolutely. Like, you know, that, that, that to me would be the big strength in that model. It doesn't have to be a lot of code, but it's making yeah. those very clear sort of declarative lines to allow the, the underlying infrastructure, the Erlang bits, to go do what it wants to do to scale effectively. Absolutely. They have keywords in there. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know what is going to happen with this. So you can call like task.async mm-hmm. and just wait on it. And then yeah. you can go do other things and then you can await the return, spawn a process. I don't care, fire and forget. And yeah, yeah you find yourself thinking in those terms, which I never really did with C Sharp ever. Right. And C Sharp is a very capable language, but sure. I just don't you think You can do that more with JavaScript, I think. A little you know? bit. Well, with the callbacks, yeah. But yeah. still, it's, you're still like dealing with a like, single thread. Like SignalR, you subscribe to events, and you have a Lambda, yeah. and then when this happens, do that, and when this happens, do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very event mindset, yeah, too, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. It's the same yeah. kind of beautiful syndrome. I love this whole async world. I love it, love it's it, love it, love it. It's so much more liberating from you know, procedural top-down programming. It's funny, we started talking, uh, uh, I'm trying to think when that was. We, I was having a discussion with uh, other developers about async versus parallel. Right. Which I think a lot of people confuse. Totally. Yes. And um, so I, I did a demo in a talk I gave once where I, I'm piping out to uh, the say command in the Mac. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah, so I, it's the whor- <laughs> world's worst demo is what I called it. <laughs> no, it's great. That's great. <laughs> so I made this Elixir script that... I said, okay, I'm going to spawn a process, async, and I'm going to queue up, you know, a say command says hello. And so I did it 20 times in a loop. Yeah. And I just called it asynchronously. Well, I'm only calling to a single process asking it to do 20 things. Mm -hmm. So, of course, it's all serial. It doesn't matter that it's asynchronous. And I said, now let's make this parallel and think about how you do that in your language of choice. Right. Spawn up 20 threads. It's really the only thing you can do. Or Mm -hmm. let C Sharp handle it for you. Or Mm. in JavaScript, just forget about it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But with with, uh, it was cool. With, With Elixir, three or four lines of code later, I've got 20 voices in parallel saying hello. It was That's like, bomb the audience. <laughs> but then the fun thing is, is in the loop, in the loop, I put a, um, a 200 millisecond delay 
And so then it was like, la, 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 la. it was really funny. It made <laughs> me laugh. Great. I know, That's but to so see funny. the power that you have just yeah. at your finger, it's not something exceptional where, you know, if you read someone's code base, like say in .NET, and they're doing some tricky stuff, doing right. async, you think, do you really need to do that? Yeah. And yeah. the only reason I say that is because threading sucks. And it, I don't care what you have running you should, underneath. It's so easy to make mistakes. And, you should and it's so hard to debug when you do That's exactly right. You yeah. should especially consider your async code when you're dealing with that uh, device bound or, or ta uh, CPU bound, mm -hmm. not CPU bound, but device bound, like IO. Yep. You know, for example, you're writing to the disk. Well, the oh, disk yeah. can only write so much at the same time. Yep. So what are you doing, really? Yep. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, must be that happy time again. Yes. It's time to accrete some humor into my joke actor and... Uh, Jeez! Uh, Oops! <laughs> something restarted it. I don't know what happened there. That OTP saved us again. Something came around and just restarted it. Nice. Ah. It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, building a mobile application for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone doesn't have to leave you yearning for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Life is worth living, nice. we promise. <laughs> There's definitely a better way, and it's the Telerik platform. It not only helps you build awesome cross-plat mobile apps fast, it's also a complete solution that supports the entire spectrum of your development needs, from design, build, and test, to deploy, manage, and measure. You're covered. Try it for free at Telerik.com slash platform. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Victor Pavlovich. Ah, congratulations, Victor. All yeah. clap for you, sir. A round of applause for Victor. Fine set of clappers. I, I have to go back in my email and find out who actually sent me these. <laughs> <laughs> if you're the person who sent me these, I want to hear from you because I'm clappers. sorry. I forgot yeah, the clappers. You use yeah. them a lot. I use them all the time. And uh, Victor just won the Telerik DevCraft collection just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member chosen at random mm -hmm. from all of the .NET Rocks fan club members. But you got to sign up to win. And Rob, it's your turn. I don't know when it was last we talked to you, but uh, maybe something's changed. You got five grand. You're going mm -hmm. shopping. What are you buying? Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> I know I'm supposed to come up with answers. I don't know. Here's the, here's the thing. No, I do know. <laughs> let me just let me just couch this. I have so many gadgets in my house. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but there's other ways to spend money. You could buy shelving five hundred uh, uh, Raspberry Pis and give them away to your I local school. I was just school. going to say exactly that, Raspberry you know? Pi Rain. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd probably buy a bunch of laptops and give them to. Yeah, maybe yeah. I don't know about a school, but it's some some group that needed it, yeah. some yeah. student group, or help start a, yeah. a local makers uh, yeah, space or something. Exactly. Yeah, that's always interesting. I think yeah. the first person on the show to take the five thousand dollars and give it away was Robert Scoble. Yeah. What did he want to do with it? He was wanted it, to it just, do donation? just donate it to charity yeah. or something, and I, he was well, the first one. Folks who were like, "I'm going to hire a." Remote assistant? I think I was Jonathan Zuck. He, he said, I'm so busy, I want to hire a remote assistant. There you mm -hmm. go. And not a remote assistant, to hire a personal assistant. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting ways to go on yeah. that. Exactly. It's all good. You mentioned off the top of the show this open telecom platform. Yes. So is it actually a platform? 
Uh, I would say yeah. 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 It's uh. Is it really about telephones? It was built to facilitate switches. Right. So telephone switches. Yeah, yeah, it's coming up against the edge of my knowledge, but basically, this is the funny thing about it is. It's very OO in concept. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because it is funny. Joe Armstrong has a quote that, uh, I think it's Joe Armstrong, that Erlang is the most object-oriented language there is. <laughs> 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 Which is pretty funny. But they, know, they realized they needed to have the concept of state. Right. And, yeah. and these things that, uh, you know, I say accrete data, but things that kind of have data associated with mm-hmm. them. So that's what OTP facilitates. Okay. They yeah. acquire state. Yeah, it's great. Once you get into it and you start seeing these things that you can do, like amnesia. Did mm-hmm. we talk about amnesia no. last time? Amnesia is a built-in... Wait a minute, let me guess. It eradicates the state in all of your actors. It persists the state in all the actors. Oh, well, why is it called amnesia? I don't know. Isn't it funny? It's amnesia, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's this... It's, people call it a NoSQL, data, NoSQL database, which is true and sort of true, but hmm. it's the combination of in-memory and disk-based storage okay. of data. Right. And... Um, People don't use it much these days, but you can. It's, mm-hmm. it's on SourceForge, man. It's old. It's, mm. it's super old. I was talking to Francesco Cesarini, who's uh, big into the Erlang scene, and mm. he, uh, I was asking him, do you ever use this in production? He said, it's kind of past its expiration date. Okay. Is what you put it. <laughs> but get this, it's an ACID-compliant NoSQL data store. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. So as a... As a why as not? A, yeah. Yeah, why not? And, well, there's certain guarantees with rights and everything, but yeah. the problem is if you have it between two uh, nodes or two machines, two mm-hmm. VMs, and there's a net splitter, there's a communication problem, uh, it will pretty much die. Oh. So, oh. It's, there's no guarantees with so that. So it's not particularly resilient. It is not partition tolerant. And you think say. about yeah, the, this whole actor model and what Erlang's great for, it is this resiliency. Like, oh, it's amazing, yeah. It can take, mm-hmm. it can take a lot. Yeah, it, and hot code swapping mm-hmm. is something that's pretty kind of amazing, fantastic. Really. Now, you're a do-it-yourself guy. Did yes. you write your own sort of database persistence or oh, data heck persistence yeah. That stuff? was the first thing I did. Of course I was, you did. I, was using, did. I know, that's just what I do. Massive for uh, Dude, I, I was, feel exactly that. I love doing that stuff. It's great. Because yeah. you learn so much, yeah. and it works. I called it Mobius. I don't know why. Mobius. Like a Mobius, Mobius band. Strip. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much because I was I asking people on Twitter, what do you what do you what do you call a functional ORM? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> make sense. <laughs> so, how do you really, how do you map objects in a language that doesn't <laughs> have objects? Yeah. What is funny, you know I get in arguments with people. Can you imagine me arguing with people no, about data? Yeah, yeah, it's so amazing. I know. Well, the, these people are. Uh, Ecto is the big. It's the big data access tool. Yeah. Right. And and so they they like no. It's a it's a DSL for data access. And I mm-hmm. it's a, it's a arm in every sense. I get in arguments with people constantly in the Elixir community, including Jose himself. Hmm. And. Jose actually admitted to me, you know what? You're right. It is a norm. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. And that's one of the things I love about the Elixir right, community. You Twitter babies. Suck yeah. it. I know. So it, is it really just a function mapper or it's a data set mapper? You, yeah. It's, uh, you're talking about my uh, Mobius or Ecto? Ecto. Ecto. Um, Ecto, basically, it's, um, you have a module. It has a schema to it. Mm-hmm. And it bounces data off and pulls it in as a struct. So, right. I mean, it's, a, it's an ORM. It's a persistent struct. Yeah, it maps data to and from a database. So there you go. There you are. That's really interesting. So, it's pretty fun. So, anyway, like, I, when I first started using Elixir, I was like, ah, I don't want to think like this. I don't want to be thinking in terms of modules and schemas and models and all that other crap. So, I made my own. <laughs> so, now we're bump getting back to this idea that uh, people in the object-oriented world are naturally going to compare objects and actors. Sure. And, you know, I... Uh, I don't know. I 
when we I, when I first learned about the actor model, I had I have done a lot of Win Thirty Two work. Mm -hmm. You know, I read uh, Petzold's book and Appleman's book, and I was doing it in VB. But still, you know, I was doing the messaging, sending messages, and all of that stuff. And it occurred to me that the Windows message pump is is really an actor model. Hmm. You know, where every window is an actor, and in in a window, in if you're writing it in C, you write a loop. And in that loop, you look for messages that come to you, and there are messages; they're constants. Yeah. Sure. And then mouse based on like redraw, yeah, your mouse move, redraw, mm -hmm. whatever it is that they map one to one to the events in Visual Basic, which now are in .NET. And, uh, and, and so it's basically an, a, a self-contained entity that doesn't know anything about the outside world and just responds to messages. Mm -hmm. That's an actor. Yeah. So an object is an object and an actor really the same in that they have outside forces that can work on them. The only difference is that the actor has the, uh, can't, you know, another actor can't reach into an actor mm -hmm. and pull out right. and manipulate its state directly. Right. Yep. It has to all be done by the actor itself based on messages. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, in and out uh, of data, there's no, right, you yeah, can't. There's no outside references, yeah. basically. Yeah, there's ways. There's ways in uh, Erlang to do that. Um, to manage the mutability. Um, no, I'm sorry. Um, to to, to make both public, both processes want to access some data. Yeah. Okay. some joint data, and that's. But that's like those are called ETS or it's ETS term storage. And you have to do it declaratively, like you're saying. Well, you create. Yeah. That's what we're going to share. So, but it's a different construct. But it's part of OTP mm -hmm. Erlang term storage. I think is what they call it ETS, and then it's just in-memory data, and then you can have two processes query it. So right. Yeah. So to continue along that line, I mean, that's a sort of a technical description of the differences, but what are some of the, maybe the, the things that when you were first getting into it that you had to sort of adjust your mind around? Mm. Maybe a practical example of how, oh, this is an actor, not an object. Yeah, it's a good question. I remember the you did that blog post where you sort of you showed like five versions of the same code. Yeah. They all always did the same thing, but... Each pass with Elixir got a little shorter, a little terser. Yeah, I would say the shopping cart. Coming back to that again, yeah, right. I something that if you were doing it in object oriented C sharp, you'd be you'd just expose a property. And now, oh, how am yeah. I going to do that as an actor? See, I, I'm calling it a shopping cart, but uh, I'm saying that because that's how people think of these things. Right. Yeah. And what I did was I took a step back and I said, "What I, what am I doing here?" Mm. And and you I and I wrote a sentence and I said, um, "This is the sales process." Right, I'm, my customer is browsing mm -hmm. my my catalog, right, and hopefully will buy something. And I just kind of went off that, and they're filling out a sales mm -hmm. order is what's happening. Mm -hmm. and the minute you kind of break your head and go, that's that's a sales order. Mm -hmm. And you think of the sales orders as your data. Yep. And the sales process is the thing that you now are going to code. Mm. And so that's where I started. So I called it, I called it literally sales. <laughs> and, mm. and I just thought, oh, may, maybe I'll rename this later because naming is really easy. Mm -hmm. um, and, anyway, so. <laughs> Yeah, I started writing this code. It was this big, and I squeezed it down, squeezed it down, squeezed it down. And that, to me, I started seeing things. I started seeing things totally differently. Because when you think about a sales process, the state of a sale, right, is the data I want. Right. Yeah, and then sure. you're like, but there it's also it is. fairly top down normally. I mean, yeah. At least in my, in my database centric head. Right? Yeah, sure. 
you are out, you've got it, you've got a completed order, and you just sort of spit it out. Yeah, it's right. like the United Nations of programming, right here, sitting at this table. <laughs> yes, you got the functional guy, the object-oriented guy, and the data guy. There we go. Yeah. And we're all vaguely well, pissed off. <laughs> I'm much more. No, I'm much more on the data end of things. I, I'm, yeah. I, you know, it's funny because people say, "Oh, you're all functional now." I'm like, I know so little. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I don't. You wanna, know enough to know you don't know. Nothing, yeah, right? I'll never ever say I'm an expert on anything really. Wow. Yeah. So. No, that's the, that's the sort of the mark of somebody competent. And it is. Well, thanks. You, well, you, <laughs> it's true. It takes enough competence to know you don't know anything, yeah. right? Yeah. It's way easier to be a, uh, an experienced amateur. Mm. Yeah. Experienced amateurs know stuff. Oh, they yeah. know everything. Yeah, they yeah. know a lot of stuff. What is that Joseph Campbell quote? We were speaking about him. Yeah. And it's like, he who says he knows, knows not. But he who knows that he does not know, Knows. Wow. <laughs> nice. Good job, Carl. Yeah. Wow. And that is, I think, I like the competency term yeah. as, rather than the expert term or the, ma- you know, the, we all have this picture of mastery that you totally know mm. it, but I don't know that we ever legitimately get there. Yeah. So, mm. but competency to know enough to recognize what you don't know. I got an, yeah. I got an interesting Twitter battle um, about this. Which you are prone to. I know. Yeah, I, I can't you know, imagine. Not so much recently, but this was a few years back where I made a quip on Twitter. Someone's like, I'll never be a master in Ruby or Rails or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know. It took me about six months to master that. In my mind. Right. It, yeah. was, <laughs> it was literally, I, I know this well enough yeah. to like, Build something and then learn more. Mm. Right. Because in my mind, mastery just means you're you're able to like do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then, it, oh man, I got hammered. And people were like, oh, you think you're all this and that? And like, yeah, right. The check the ego on this guy. Like, oh no, no, not like a Jedi master. <laughs> no, you know? no. I didn't mean that at I all. I don't think of ego when I think of you, Rob. Oh geez, you're no, so I sweet. Don't. No, I don't. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah. it's nice. It's also just having your software face reality, right? Like, yeah. You got to put that e-commerce side up uh-huh. and. and Doing a transaction isn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's not slowing down as the transactional velocity oh, yeah. grows. Mm. That's right. Like, can you remain stable? Yeah. How quickly can you fire those Stripe requests off? Yeah. Like you've got API limits. You've got concurrency problems. That's right. like, and it's not even your code. Right? It's code yeah. you need to call to. Yeah. So it's, it gets really interesting when you think about this parallelism that is prevalent in Elixir. Mm-hmm. It might be a problem when it comes to calling to a third-party API. Yes, absolutely. You don't want 15 transactions well, to go at once. It's you a problem calling the database. Right. I, I've shut down Postgres, which is funny. <laughs> I had a demo where I did that. I, like, I bombarded it with 100, no, 5,000 requests at once, concurrently. Right. Bam. Mm, and it just went, boop. Yeah, and I was just like looking at that. <laughs> Look, like the database popped. I could, not, I could not do that in Node. No. Unless I had like, no, I couldn't do it in Node. I mean, everything single process, single threaded, even the event loop. And right. uh, yeah, it's pretty funny to think about that. So I learned something last night as we were having a beer, in my case, a glass of wine, uh, it, about Elixir is that I, f- I was under the impression, based on all the things that we did on Erlang, uh, that Erlang was its own sort of operating system that just mm. booted up and, and ran. Yeah. And, and it's sort of all, all contained. But it really is a runtime, mm-hmm. like .NET is a runtime. Right that runs on a shim of an OS. Mm-hmm. And you were, I think it was you that told me that you can run it on a Linux OS and boot Linux and then run the Erlang yeah. VM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So this yeah. is this is an interesting thing. I think our listeners should know. Well, this is um, yeah. It's a it's a virtual machine, just like the JVM. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're doing all these uh, major performance tests, especially with Phoenix. And so Phoenix, you can currently right now have two million open sockets. Yeah. Which is bonkers. Off of That's one machine. Crazy. Yeah, one machine. They well, did this, those were, these were WhatsApp numbers. Yeah, yeah. They, that, these are WhatsApp numbers exactly. So right. they wanted, and but that was, was, the OS was... They, they have the, the whole talk, you should see it. Chris McCord gives it. Right. Um, the road to two million, I think is what it's called. But yeah. yeah. Two million simultaneous they, connections to a single machine. Right. So two million, like two million was so 2010 is the, is the thing. <laughs> ah, that's great. So, so, or was it 2012? One of the two. But now, yeah, they were able to do it. They had to tweak a little stuff under the hood. But with WhatsApp, the way they did it was they had to tweak uh, Linux. And then they had to tweak the hardware to allow right. the connections to come in. And so they, they found out that Linux was the bottleneck, which is hysterical. Well, nowadays, yeah. they could do it. And so this talk I was telling you about with Francesco, um, big Erlang guy, they're looking at ways to get around Linux's limitations. I love that. Yeah, that's These crazy. outrageously high numbers they set at the time. was like, who's going to need 2 million connections? That's right. effectively infinite. So they think that now... If I have this right, his, what he said to me, they think that they can get, they can move Linux out of the way. They're looking to be able to boot right into Erlang and go straight to bare metal to get up to 4 million. Wow. <laughs> 4 million current connections. That's amazing. We just talked to Damian Edwards today. Yeah. And the perf on ASP.NET Core yeah. is at 5 million. That's amazing. How incredible is that? I know. It's insane. And just last fall, it was at 700,000, 800,000. Man. They just optimize the test. Right? The race design. Better or worse. Yeah. It's very hard to benchmark well, right? Yeah. Every test has bias in it. Yeah, right. Sure. Like, yeah. Well, when you get to those numbers, then, you know, your, your website, website and your sockets on it, that's not your bottleneck. It's yeah. your database. Yeah. You know? Something else. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting stuff. It's really It cool. is really interesting. And I, I really appreciate the idea that I'm understanding the architecture of Erlang now, even more now. It's a... It's a VM that runs on an, an underlying OS that you typically boot yeah. uh, instead of running it as a program in, let's mm-hmm. say, Windows or whatever. But then uh, on top of that, now you have Elixir, which is a syntactic language that compiles to the same Erlang that Erlang language compiles to. Yep. And on top of that, you have Phoenix, which is the sort of Rails uh set of code yeah. that um, you know for managing web applications yeah if there's any phoenix people out there screaming right now <laughs> I don't, sorry no, i brought I that up I, i'm <laughs> sorry i don't know i'm, no, no, I'm just trying to understand it's it. probably the easiest way to understand it for people yeah. that aren't familiar with right so when it comes to um, and i'm thinking the configuration is code mentality mm-hmm. with the supervised uh you know execution and so forth so we have a lot of recovery and so on, and so on what does the build script look like? Like, how hard is it to go from a bare metal machine to Erlang running with the app installed and so forth? Is it tooling um, or it's got to be manual? When you to get you can you can start up Erlang on a machine pretty easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just go with bare bones, that handles mm-hmm. probably ninety nine point nine 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 percent right of everybody's right. needs. But if you need to tweak it, you just send in some flags, and then you can tell it you know allow this many processes at one time and so on. But getting it up and running is pretty simple. But as far as your app goes, you have a, it's like a package.json, but it's, it's code. Right. It's mix.exs mm-hmm. is the name of the file. And inside there, you have directives for your app and your dependencies and everything else. So it's pretty simple. Nice. Well, Gen- and I do like that it's all in a package so that you can you know, make a bunch of them if you need to. Sure. What about the cloud? Like, Where does it work in the cloud? Uh, any, anywhere you can run Linux. 
pretty much. Uh, oh, it works really? at Heroku, oh, too. Of course, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, Heroku, you can push right to it. You just have to install the Elixir build pack, and so it works pretty can, well. You can pull up a Docker container and install Absolutely. it in there, and you've got two million concurrent users. Yeah, well, <laughs> you <laughs> no. need a pretty big machine to, yeah, to handle yeah. that. But it's mostly because if you're doing any querying or anything like that, yeah, of course. Okay. But I would not recommend two million on one box. But, uh, but in the cloud that we're talking about, sure. you can well, allocate resources to it. But I just love the counter argument. It's like, well, how are we going to scale this? You're getting two million connections a box. No, you're right. What are you scaling? I know, exactly. I know that's the thing. That's <laughs> two a, machines? Yeah. So at that point, what you're worried about is is outages. You're worried yeah. about, yeah. Redundancy. Of the... Of the of Amazon or wherever yeah. you know, like your app's not going to go down. Well, that's well, how we my, my experience has been when people wanted to go to multiple servers, it was first for reliability, mm -hmm. then for performance. Yeah. And then the third was continuous uptime. Like yeah. but if, if we come up with ability to patch individual machines and roll them out without ever taking the site. What's down. cool is if you have a container that has Erlang in it and, you know, Elixir, you can run one instance on AWS and run another instance on Azure. And now sure. you've got redundancy across completely mm -hmm. different clouds. Right. Yeah. Maybe even one in Google Cloud. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Elastic Beanstalk, I think, is gearing up for to put Such out a Elixir. Name. I, I know, it. it's neat. But they, it comes with redundancy across... Uh, well, you can choose to have redundancy across uh, regions, which is mm -hmm. neat. But I haven't got there yet. My uh, fictional aerospace company is... Uh, not quite that busy yet? Yeah, mm -hmm. no, we're, we're, still, mm -hmm. we're still pushing the thing. So, But I'm CTO now. Congratulations. Cool. Thanks to my... It's fictional, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next? I got that. What's next, man? What are you gonna do? Uh, what are you gonna do now? Well, so I have actually moved to doing uh, my own kind of tutorials again. Uh, Pluralsight went in a different direction. Uh, they do oh, enterprise okay. training. They've gone stuff. very enterprisey. Yeah. So they they're doing enterprise training, and I I don't have the skills that what they want to do. Yeah. They were so good about it. I'm so just I. Really, actually, you know, it's kind of fun. A lot of my friends were saying, oh, acquisitions never work. Yeah. Uh, this time it did, and yeah. it worked well. And they've been really good to me. And good. even at this point, they're like, sorry. And they kind of just yeah, they cut, my, they cut my non-compete. They just Great. said, go ahead and do what you want. I said, well, I'm going to nice. do my training Fantastic. stuff. Is that okay with you? And they said, sure, go ahead. Have a good time. Wow. I know. Well, if you great. make something great, maybe they'll come buy yeah. it from me again. So I did I did push a tutorial. I got to do a little plug. Sorry. It's totally great, great, man. Uh, red4.io. So red4 spelled out. And so that's where I put my Elixir stuff. So I did a video and a book. And there it is. There it is. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Rob, thanks. It's always great talking oh, to you, man. Oh, it's so fun talking to you guys. And yeah, be sure to come up to Vancouver and uh, yes, sir. see your place. Yeah, and come on Make up. it out of the East Coast. And yeah, of course. I'll drink your scotch. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you guys next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. 
See you next time. Transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a